Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm your host Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Christian Young. Christian is the founder, executive producer and managing director of Spiked Media, a company which creates high quality digital video campaigns for a wide range of clients in the UK and internationally. Christian, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Hello, thank you for having me on. It's a real pleasure, Christian. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we sort of dive straight in and look at that word leader just on its own for a moment, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Well, I think there's a couple of key things that all leaders need to have and is a key part of leadership. So, there's obviously a, a, an important element in having vision and um, steering direction. I'm careful not to necessarily say setting direction because certainly in a wider organization, the job of lead, a leader is not just to single-handedly set direction themselves, but to bring the best out of the team. Um, and as a result of all the different teams' visions, ideas, to work out what is the best way forward for an organization or a group of people. Um, uh, So leadership is is helping everyone to steer towards the optimum outcome. I I think a large proportion of it is about serving the team that you're working with, that it's about helping helping give everyone on your team what you need to succeed while setting helping everyone come aligned towards a common goal. Um yeah, I think it I think it's about creating a positive vision of where things are going and helping people have all they need to everyone contribute to getting there. Mm, I completely understand where you're coming from there. It's just about the team as well as yourself, isn't it? And I think it's it's very much a two-way relationship. It's not just about you as a leader nurturing the best out of those around you, but also picking and choosing those yeah. around you so they can also get the best out of you as well. And although we also say that management and leadership are sort of different things, I think there is an element of people management, especially that has to come into leadership. I mean, you might not be particularly good at it and you might have somebody else doing most of that on your behalf, but being able to have positive relationships with people, I mean, that's integral, isn't it? That's huge. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to be an effective leader if relationships and um, if effective and good relationships aren't at the core of things. Um, You can obviously do incentivize leadership where people only follow the directions you give by getting a wage or money. But I think we, we see in business very quickly that if you have that kind of model where people's only motivation is a paycheck, the, the, the loyalty, the passion to drive forward towards the goals um, doesn't stick around for very long. And as soon as a better offer comes along, people go. I think fundamentally when people look to be part of a team, whether it be as a job or whether it be in sports or anything, or any form of team really, people are looking to not just get something out of it, but to contribute to it. Um, and that means aligning with the vision. It means being part of the community, having voices that are heard. It, it means being part of the conversation and being an active part of achieving whichever goal it is. And you can't do that unless you have relationships with the team. For someone to feel a valued part, they've got to be listened to. They've got to have the ability to contribute the bits that they can do um, in the best possible way. And that comes 
from talking to people, having a relationship. And particularly, I think, I, I don't think anybody's really been part of any project where you never have a tough day, <laughs> where things mm. never get tense. And it's certainly the relationship capital and the relationships you build up with people over time that when the tough days hit, allows you to keep working together and moving through rather than it falling flat. So I think investing in those relationships is such a core part of the leadership journey. Um, it's certainly something that we see in business that obviously in the creative industry, we're quite a um, high pressure situation on when we hit tight deadlines and when things all need to be done at just the right moment. And that can be, it can be quite a tough environment, but it's, the camaraderie, it's the relationships you've built with other people, it's the trust that they've built up in knowing that you're going to look after them and make sure that they're okay, even when there's pressure situations that allows people to keep moving forward and pushing through and helping us hit our goals and then hopefully celebrate with a drink or, a, a, or go out to dinner or something as a team later to just really keep investing and building on, um, building on those relationships because they're really a fundamental thing of what it means to be people. It's culture, isn't it, more than anything else um, that. And I think instilling a positive yeah. culture such as that is hugely important from a leadership perspective. But also you say there's um, a leadership well, journey we all have to go on um, as well. And um, that's um, yeah. also important. Um, I will, of course, um, let you um, speak now, Christian, because I knew you were going to say something there. Oh, I, I was going to say, I mean, I guess you don't just see it in business. But I think you see it in the bear. In sports is a good example. You see a lot of sports teams where the most successful teams are a team that invest in relationships with each other. You do see sports teams where you might have uh, one big star um, and everything's built around that star. But you tend to find those teams have limited success because it's very hard for a single person to carry an entire team. For a team to be effective, you need those relationships and the ability for everybody to play their part. And quite often you'll find the most successful ones might have a couple of stars as part of the team, but they're the ones that get the team first mentality on certainly on average and um, a lot more than that do well so those relationships that you have with your co-workers are key to success it's it, as soon as you go beyond individual events or in business you go beyond one particular person trying to achieve things you need the team to be effective and the relationships are the key Mm, it's it's that mentality isn't it of having a team that's greater together than the sum of their parts isn't it that's um absolutely massive yeah. and we also talked earlier just about that sort of leadership journey that everybody goes on and um, the importance of empowering people to have their voices heard and to be honest i think that's important from a leadership perspective because what you're then doing is you're encouraging others to then take on their own form of leadership in a way by being independent putting forward their own ideas and by doing that they're going to of course um be able to try new things for themselves, maybe have the experience of making one or two mistakes and having setbacks along the way. And they'll ultimately learn from that as people do in leadership roles as well. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly our journey with that is as a founder, I almost have it slightly easy that I made a lot of those journeys at the start myself. So I learned a lot through a lot of failure along the way and a lot of mistakes. And um, luckily, we've been pretty good at catching mistakes before they've really done anything too bad. Um, dealt with it, got it fixed for clients, got it fixed for the people we're working with and moved forward in a positive way. Um, and I think I think as we've grown, we've certainly learned that there's this real, you don't, once you've learned a lesson and once you've managed to get things in place, you don't continue to uh, continue to get things wrong. 
you don't want the people that are taking on the reins of leadership as you almost step up a level or move into bigger things and some of your responsibilities are passed down. You don't really want them to repeat the mistakes you've made. But that's a really high benchmark. I think, as you say, people have, people do learn from having responsibility and they make the mistakes. And we know we learned the lessons from the mistakes we made along the way. And there's always a tension in leadership between trying to give people all of the answers so that nothing made mistakes and they have everything they need to deliver things well from uh, against growing people as people. Because if you grow them as people, you give them the responsibilities and they are going to grow, but they're going to make those mistakes along the way. And I think it's a tension that certainly as we've grown, it's something that we're always looking at. And I can say straight off, the right answer is empowering people and helping people to learn themselves, give them the responsibility and let them make the mistakes because there's such a greater level of ownership. The level of learning is so much stronger and the, the, the level of delivery comes there. It's just the tension that you're fighting as a founder or as a leader is, if they're making these mistakes, how does that affect the business? Because I know as I did it along the way, we it, it set us back a step here and there, but we've thankfully let forward a lot further. And so you're really conscious of trying to not let people set you back, but also trying to empower them. And I think for us, and certainly for us as a company, the thing, the, the challenge that we've always, we always try to strike a balance with is letting people make mistakes, but then how to step in and help fix it. Mm. Um, we don't want to disempower leaders by taking, uh, t- by they get it wrong and then we step in and clean up the mess. We want them to be able to go and learn the lessons of how to set a relationship right. If you've, if you've not treated a client properly, then go and heal that relationship and take us back into a good place to be productive. But equally, not trying to cover mistakes under the carpet. Go, um, I think it's quite important that we have a culture in our leadership where, you know, if we get something wrong, we admit it. Nobody's mad that anybody's made a mistake. Um, what we need to do is just own it and then work and fix it together. And I think that's been the I think that's been the hardest part of learning how to really grow leaders under under me, giving people the freedom to make mistakes, but equally so not just defending and covering over mistakes, but sitting down with the leaders and basically stepping in with them, helping them address the things that go wrong. So we're both looking after our leaders, but also our clients and our team and those affected um, as we learn. It's recognising that we're not infallible, isn't it, for sure. And um, you mentioned, of course, there yeah. that you've gone on so many sort of um, leadership journeys um, on your career quite early on um, in terms of launching the uh, the business. But perhaps you could sort of tell yeah. myself and the listeners some of the big influences and inspirations that had a profound impact on you at that stage and have continued to do so as you've developed. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I, I we work in media and we're video and animation led. So I grew up learning from a lot of great leaders on TV. Um, so I'll probably quote a couple, a couple that I've show, seen on um, shows, actually. I mean, I grew up a lot uh, with a lot of, I think a lot of Jack Bauer on 24 did a lot of influencing me because I think what you did learn was it had so many strong leadership characters in the series. You had David Palmer as the president. You obviously had Jack Bauer as the lead character. And I think it, I think it, that was one of the shows that really taught me. Doing the right things in leadership often won't necessarily make you popular and won't get you recognized, but you deliver the best results for everyone if you really focus on integrity, being the person you want to be, and really working for people's good rather than working for people's recognition. I think that was a huge one. 
Um, I think I grew up, um, I mean, maybe this is a bit of a, a bit of my inner geek coming out, but I, I, I grew up with a lot of Star Trek and particularly Deep Space Nine. Um, loved that as a show and just watching the captain in that show, Cisco, who was such a strong moral character as a leader, balancing, getting the job done, pushing people where they needed that, that, that push into uncomfortable to grow as people, but also looking after looking after a team and actually genuinely delivering results. I think that's somebody that's been very strong for me. I think I've got a lot from literature. Um, I think I've, I mean, a lot of what C.S. Lewis wrote, I think a lot of characters in the story teach you uh, maybe the softer side of leadership, but how to have that almost mentoring leadership presence. Um, I think if you look at the Chronicles of Narnia, you learn a lot from the way that Aslan interacts with all the characters in the stories. And from that, you start to see how you can actually lead by guiding people and be compassionate, but also step in and influence when you need to. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm also a huge sports fan, so I, I, maybe I'm a little, my American comes out, but uh, definitely in the States, for baseball, Derek Jeter, and for uh, NFL, Tom Brady. I guess it, them as sports people have really inspired me because they've, put, they, they've done team first careers. So they, they have spent their, in, well, Brady now moving to Tampa changes that. But they've always thought about the team and realizing to actually win the game, win the match, win the, win the championships, that they have to invest in everybody around them that they have to grow. And if something goes wrong, we go, fine, that's part of the journey. Now we look at the next bat and they look at one step at a time. Um, if we're going to win the championship, what I have to do is step up and hit a, uh, hit the ball and get on base in baseball. And 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 I think it's, that, it's also the way that you see that we might be behind, but we're not out. Until the final whistle goes, it's not done. So I think the way that they they can change the perspective of the situation for the teams around them, the way that they think about the people, but they also are able to reset the perspective and the atmosphere and realize people can do it and they can get to the goal and overturn some of the biggest odds. They're definitely leaders that have really inspired me, along with a lot of bosses that in my very early career I had before I set out to start my own thing. I think I learned a lot from their leadership in the way that they mentored and cared as well as um, as well as let's I think they're all incredible examples all for very different reasons and it reminds us that leadership can come in many many different forms there as well yeah um, having looked term um, of course at uh, previous inspirations I think it only serves to address the uh, the future room as well Christian before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today considering the next year and the context of the current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic and the fact that we're still moving through this crisis what do you envision yeah that period holding for yourself and for Spiked Media and what do you hope to achieve as we do hopefully get through the pandemic and really begin to look to the long term under the new normal? Yeah, um, I mean, I guess I, in some ways this situation doesn't scare me. The world, the world has changed and I'm not expecting it to go back to normal, but I suspect we'll have a new a new form of normal. I know we're talking a lot about the new normal at the moment, but I think as COVID moves on, I think there will be changes to the way that we interact, we work, taking a lot of the lessons that we've got from COVID. When we originally founded, we did actually found um, way back in a recession. So um, operating business in tougher times um, isn't unfamiliar. And what it really takes to go well is we have to be adaptable and changeable. 
understand we're not looking for certainty so i think that gives us a lot of positive hope and um, certainty means things tend to tick over as the status quo with very little change but i think the new normal in the next year looks like we'll be successful by embracing change knowing that things will be different and things will continue to change and evolve i mean hopefully we'll never see a covid again but i'm sure we'll hit another issue in the road in a couple of years life just continuously throws things up and things move forward so learning to be adaptable learning to look at how our clients are changing and our clients businesses are altering and making sure that we're able to adapt and change to serve them well is the key for us really growing and being a success i mean we work in the media industry so it's only every couple of years before um, particularly channels change so we have facebook then we had instagram now, if you're working with Gen Z, we're talking about TikTok and we're talking about Snapchat. Um, Instagram is just a little bit millennial for a large proportion. And so learning to constantly change, adapt and listen, listen to the audiences, listen to our clients, what's needed and come up with ideas to really deliver on what they want rather than trying to return the status quo, I think is the real key. And I think, I mean, as creators, we kind of thrive on uh, thrive on change and thrive on being able to do new things but equally so as well as working as well as doing some of our own content we work a lot in the corporate field and we understand the importance of the age-old messages that don't change look after your staff we do to be a successful business keep needing to return profit or in the startup industry we need to show our value for investment of how this will actually benefit people in time so i think balancing loving to adapt to change and look and listen and engage with the new environment whilst also remembering what the core things that underpin success is, um, is really important and be able to stitch those together to serve our clients is key. And I think the next year looks really positive. I mean, <laughs> I guess one of the negatives for a lot of people is in this kind of environment, there are companies that are probably not going to survive and people that aren't able to innovate and change may struggle. But that provides a lot of opportunity for us if we can manage to both adapt to change and look at and bring new innovative ideas, but not throw out those core things that underpin making things successful. So understanding and connecting with audiences and really delivering the core things that don't change in a business and making sure that they're still expressed in ways that relate to um, the way that we want to consume information. Certainly going to be interesting uh, times for sure. And as you rightfully say, it's an uncertain time uh, for uh, business. We're not sure um, which firms are going to uh, get through this and which aren't. But I think it's going to be a real time of innovation and adaptability for those that do get through. And it will be testament for their ability to do that um, when they do survive. Yeah. And I've got to say, Christian, given how informative it's been having you on the uh, the programme with us uh, today, we're just about out of time, unfortunately. I think it would be great, you know, to actually in the next year at some point have you back on the air with us just to catch up and discuss how um, yourselves at Spike Media are getting on as well and maybe some of the initiatives you're involved in at that point. I think that would be superb from a listener's point of view. Yeah, I'd love to come back and tell you how we're getting on and I can tell you uh, some of the big successes and probably a couple of the little mistakes that we make along the way and hopefully everyone can learn from our mistakes to know what else has to repeat them. 
Let's hope there's a real positive story to tell at that point in time for sure. And um, it certainly seems as if there will be. Um, Christian, I've got to say, it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme with us. It's a shame we don't Thank have more time. Otherwise, you. we could talk about it all afternoon, I'm sure. But in the meantime, before we do, of course, touch base again in future, do, of course, take care and stay safe with all still going on. Because as we all know, we're Thank certainly you. not out of the woods with this yet. Absolutely. Um, and the best to you too. And uh, stay safe. And uh, looking forward to talking to you with some great stories again in a couple more months. I really look forward to it. And for those listeners tuning into this, do stay home where you can, do look after yourselves and do control coronavirus because it really does make a difference in saving lives. Um, I was just speaking to Christian Young there, founder, executive producer and managing director of Spiked Media. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, however, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss, Um, a former England cricket captain, of course. Sir Andrew is now the director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. But during his days as... England skipper, he joined a very illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. He also became the England Test captain with the second highest number of Test wins under his belt in history. Quite incredible. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew himself, and that is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. So Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose 
what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets before a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance 
and it put a whole new generation, especially of children, school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as Hold a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you're privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and 
you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to 
buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help... Uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change, 
and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary yeah. thing. Well, a lot of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.